Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Do you look forward to global outreach or mission weekends at your church, or do you see it as the annual guilt trip about why you're here instead of there? This is not that kind of weekend because as it turns out, here and there are both of equal concern to God. Michael Goheen, Minister of Preaching at New West Christian Reformed Church in Vancouver, British Columbia, brings us this message entitled, Every Square Inch, which covers Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Thank you for joining us today. One of the things that have been a blessing is to have Mike Goheen here with us, not just to minister to us on this weekend, but to uh, the folks in the intensive, our staff and others, that uh, it's been a great blessing. Uh, you've got an insert in your bulletin that has the, the uh, outlines and so forth on it every week. Uh, note behind that you have an introduction of Mike with all the detail of what he's done and where he is and so forth and so on. I don't want to spend my time saying all of that. You can read. But know this, Mike has got experience from the background of, of church planter uh, to a graduate school professor, author. We have one of his books in our bookstore that uh, I think you'll want to get, The True Story of the Whole World, and that's available. Uh, won't be surprised after you hear Mike. You might want to slip in there and uh, pick up a copy of his book. But uh, Mike is married, has uh, four adult children and uh, fifth grandchild on the way, and is very gracious to come and spend some of his time here with us. And so I want uh, now, if you will, uh, would you welcome Mike as he comes to, uh, to teach us? Mike. Thank you. I don't know that you can trust either Randy or Quentin. They haven't met my wife. It's good to be with you here on Super Bowl weekend. I only wish that Atlanta was playing. I was uh, hoping that they, in that last uh, drive, they would be able to get a touchdown and I would be here on a much more celebratory weekend. But maybe many more of you wouldn't have been here. (laughs) But it's good to be here. And I want to thank you, Randy, for opening up the metaphorical pulpit uh, to me. I've heard a lot about you, that you're generous with that, and uh, in a time where ego is such a big thing in American Christianity, I want to commend you and and, uh, with your generosity uh, with the pulpit. He might be sorry after I finish. But I'd like to read for you. If you have Bibles, you can turn to it. Otherwise, you can watch it, look at it on the screen. I'm going to read for you, or perhaps in your bulletin, uh, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. Can we pray together first? We pray, Father, that as we read your word and as it is proclaimed that Jesus Christ, the center of all of the scriptures, would come to us in power and grace and love, clothed in these words of scripture, clothed in the good news. By your spirit, we pray that you would bless us abundantly, that we might leave this place and be a blessing wherever we are. 
In Christ's name we pray, amen. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. One of my favorite moments in the classroom took place shortly after a trip that I had made to the Hungarian part of the Ukraine. I'd been traveling in that part of the Ukraine with a reformed pastor, and we arrived back late about 11 o'clock on a Saturday night. And he turned to me and he said, I'm supposed to be preaching tomorrow, but I haven't had any time to prepare. Would you preach? (laughs) And thinking that I could preach on whatever I wanted, I said, okay. And then he said, and the text is Romans 7. Now, if you know Romans 7, it is not an easy text. And I had not preached on it. So at 11.15 at night, I find myself back in my small apartment, and I just began to read that text over and over and over, trying to say, what is it that I can proclaim tomorrow morning? And it's not a nice text. But the thing that stood out to me as I read Romans 7 was the breadth and the power of sin, the understanding that Paul had of sin. Sin for him was almost this capital S sin, this power that was out there ready to seize every opportunity to cause him to fall. It was a malicious power at work in his own heart and at work in the world. And it was... After that, I, I was, as I proclaimed that the next day, and then, of course, get to Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. After I proclaimed that for that morning, a month later or so, I was in the classroom. And through that time, I'd become increasingly convinced that we have a very narrow view of sin in North America, very shaped by individualism often reducing sin simply to disobedience in certain ethical areas. And I was convinced that we were nowhere close to what Paul understood in terms of sin. And so I was was lecturing, perhaps I was a little more than that, I was preaching, on Genesis 3 in my biblical theology class, And I pulled out all the stops saying to myself, I am not going to let my students come away with a narrow individualistic view of sin. I want them to get hold of what the Bible teaches. And perhaps I was laying it on a little bit too heavy as I opened that up because there was a young man sitting right down in the second, sitting in the second row who was a new Christian. 
And his eyes were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And he kind of looked around at what is everybody else thinking. And then he slowly raised his hand and he said, what can we do? What can we do? If sin is this big, this wide, this powerful, what can we do? And I remember thinking at that point, and have thought about it many times since, yes, that's exactly it. It's when we come to the point where we say, what can we do that we're ready for the gospel? It's when we come to the point where we see how wide sin is, literally corrupting all of our lives, that we say, is there someone who has a salvation that wide? And when we hear Paul speak of the power of sin and its grip on human society and human lives, it's then that we're ready to say, is there a gospel more powerful than that sin? It seems to me that when we, are, when we say, what can we do, that we're then ready to hear the good news, then ready to hear the breadth of the salvation that God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. The Colossian church lived in a city in the Roman Empire, and we know much about those cities in Asia Minor, and we know that they would have understood very well the power of sin. Paul speaks of the powers and authorities throughout Colossians, indeed throughout many of his letters. And he speaks of it at least three or four times in the book of Colossians. And when he speaks of the powers and authorities, he knows that he is speaking to a church that understood what he meant and who understood that they were in the grip as a city of these powers, that these powers oppressed people, that they enslaved people. And the church knew that was the case. And Paul writes to this church that is struggling with the, this incredible breadth of the powers at work. And he comes and he says to them, you have been liberated from these powers. The Colossians said with my student, as it were, what can we do? But we have trouble, really, understanding the powers and the authorities. It's not something we talk about a lot in North American Christianity. In fact, scholarship has not talked a lot about it until the last 15 or so years, and yet it permeates Paul's letters and really is one of the most important ways into understanding how he understood sin. It would take a long time to open up what the powers and authorities are that he speaks of, but let me offer a very brief definition. This is a definition offered by N.T. Wright in his uh, commentary on Colossians. He says this, For Paul... The powers were the unseen forces working in the world through the oppressive systems that enslaved or tyrannized human beings. 
For Paul, there was at least three elements in his understanding of the powers and authorities that I think we need to understand. One was the heart of man that naturally produced idols, that is, took hold of aspects of creation, absolutized them, and made them central to their lives. Calvin said the heart of man is a a fabricator, a factory of idols. But secondly, they produced then systems that were unjust and idolatrous. And it allowed, thirdly, demon forces to get a foothold in the lives of human communities and in the lives of human beings. And that's why Paul could speak of power and sin in such a big way. And you see, these Colossians lived in a place where they understood these powers and they gave them names. They spoke of Aphrodite as the god, the goddess of sexual love. They spoke of Hephaestus as the god of technology. They spoke of Plutos as the god of wealth and material prosperity. They spoke of Bacchus as the god of pleasure. And maybe on this Super Bowl weekend, we should recognize they spoke of Strenua, the god of strength. And they spoke of Victoria, the god of victory. And aside, Victoria was simply the name given to the Greek god Nike. Nike is obviously one of the sponsors of today's NFL game. And so were these gods that were all centered ultimately in these small Asian towns in the political authority of the Caesar, and Caesar was one of those gods that they worshipped. The Colossian people felt deeply enslaved and in the grip of these powers, in the powers of the Roman worldview. As we look back 2,000 years, do we smile? As we look back and say, we don't believe that stuff anymore. We believe in a sec- we're in a secular society where we don't see that kind of stuff. We don't believe in those gods. But I wonder when we see the multi-billion dollar pornography industry that has so many in the grip of its power, whether Aphrodite is really dead. Or when we see technology that is impoverishing so many lives, and as I speak to parents, they say that is one of the biggest concerns we have in our home, how to deal with the power of technology. We wonder if Hephaestus is dead. And when we see how consumerism has gripped more and more of the urban part of our world, where material prosperity has become the goal of human life in so many places, and where marketing and ads shape our our very identity, I wonder if Plutos is dead. And I wonder in the way we make idols out of sports, whether Victoria is dead. Indeed, Paul saw these powers, but he knew they were not gods. He knew they were simply good parts of creation, as we'll see in a moment, that human beings had made idols out of. And as they had made idols, they had given up responsibility and had become enslaved to these things, giving foothold for the spiritual forces at work in the world. Paul knew that there was a spiritual battle going on, And he understood the Colossians' need. 
And the Colossians were in the place where they said, what can we do? And Paul has good news. And when we come to that point where we can say, what can we do living in this world where there's a spiritual battle taking place for our lives, we're ready also to hear a good news that is more comprehensive and more powerful than any of the powers at work in the world. Paul prays in the section just before what I read that the Colossian Christians may live a life worthy of God, a life that pleases God. And as part of that worthy life, he says, you are to give joyful thanks. As a matter of fact, thanksgiving and gratitude runs ramrod through this whole book. Give joyful thanks. And why could they give joyful thanks? Because he says in verse 13, you have been rescued from this dominion of darkness. You have been brought out of that dominion into the kingdom of the son he loves and have received the forgiveness of sins. You've been transferred from one kingdom to another. You don't have to live under those powers. Now you live under the authority of Christ. Give joyful thanks. And so the Colossians, as they felt that grip of the powers in their city, they could say, thank God, I've been redeemed. I've been rescued to now serve Christ alone in his kingdom. But he goes on, and this is where we must understand the text that I read for you this morning. He goes on to say, here's why you can give thanks and know that you have been rescued and redeemed. Let me tell you more about that person who has redeemed you and rescued you. Let me tell you more about him so you know that he is so much greater than the powers and so that the one you are serving in the kingdom of God is worthy of your lives, the entirety of your lives. In other words, the son that he speaks of, the son of God, Christ, is more than a match more than a match for these powers. Thank God, he says. If the tyranny of the powers is very powerful, how much more so is Jesus Christ? If the tyranny of the powers has a comprehensive grip on human society and human life, how much more so does Christ's redemption extend to the whole of human life? And that's his concern. This is not an abstract passage. And so he tells us first that the Son is no one less than God. He smashes that whole pantheon of the gods with a, with a monotheism, that is, there's one God, a Jewish understanding of one God, and he says that Jesus, the Son, is the image of the invisible God. And that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And he says in the next chapter, too, he says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. This one that has the kingdom of God is no less than God himself. And he brings that to bear, not in chapter 1, but in chapter 2 on his subject. He says, therefore, he is the head over every power and authority. He's God. But secondly, he says, the Son is the creator. 
For in him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. Everything, he says. He says these powers, he says when you look at sexuality, at technology, at material prosperity, at pleasure, at political authority, at religious authority, all of those have been created by Christ. And they've been created to serve him. They are not powers autonomous out there that have control. They've been created by Jesus Christ, who's the creator of all things. But then thirdly, he says, they all hold together in him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Each one of these areas of life, Paul says, only makes sense in relationship to the center that is in Jesus. They find their meaning and their rightful place when Christ is seen at the center of them all. Sexuality, technology, sports, scholarship, education, all of these are good parts of creation that are held together only when Christ is at the center. There's a little song that you probably know that we used to sing in our family worship. We're going to sing it a little bit later with one change. The song goes like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Then the third line I don't like so much. And the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. But reading Colossians, that's not what Paul says. He says something like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth take their rightful place in the light of his glory and grace. All of these powers that you think are powers are simply God's creation that take their rightful place and find their unity in Christ. He says, but right now, because of human idolatry, they're not there. And so the fourth thing he says about Christ is that Christ is reconciling to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. That is, he's bringing all things back to their rightful place and where he meant them to be in his creation. And then he says, here's how he's doing it. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He expands on that in chapter 2, verse 15, in a very beautiful way that we it would be hard for us sometimes to get hold of because of our lack of understanding of that culture. But let me try to say it very briefly like this. The two most powerful religious powers, he refers to them in 1 Corinthians, the religious power of the Jew, the political power of the Romes, Rome, conspired to put Christ on the cross. They stripped him. They put him on the cross. They humiliated him. They tortured him. And they killed him. And what Paul says is, it might seem like the powers had gained a great victory. But in chapter 2.15, it says, and Christ stripped the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. 
By removing the rebellion and the idolatry from the hearts of human beings and conquering sin, he was able to triumph over all demonic power that had any kind of grip on human life. And so Paul says he is reconciling all the good parts of creation, therefore, through the cross. The creational powers now can take their rightful place. But notice, fourthly, why Jesus has done all of this. In verse 18, it says, so that in everything he might have supremacy. So that in everything he might have supremacy. A little later in the book of Colossians, he's going to say, whatever you do, do all in the name of Jesus Christ. And if that's not just an exaggerated platitude, but if Paul really means that, he means that we are called to do everything in the name of Jesus Christ. Will you do that this evening when you watch the Super Bowl? I just read an article yesterday that came onto my, on my, in my inbox and I was asking about how Christians should view the Super Bowl. And they talked about the sexualization of women and all the ads and the culture of violence and so on. And it was raising the question, and it ended by saying, turn the TV off. I like NFL football too much. But I don't think that's the way we're called to deal with God's creation, to put it aside. We're called to do everything in the name of Christ, and Christ says, that belongs to me. That area of athletics and that area of sports belongs to me. And I want you to do everything in the name of Christ, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your family, whether it is your neighborhood, whether it is your work, whether it is your play, whether it's your leisure, whether the way you use technology. I want you to do all in the name of Christ, Paul says. There's a couple of quotes that I want to bring before you. One is from Abram Kuyper, and he says this, There is not one square inch of the entire domain of human life of which Christ, the rightful Lord over all, does not proclaim, this is mine. There's no part of the creation that he doesn't say, this belongs to me. And C.S. Lewis says, There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed and counterclaimed Counterclaimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. That is a very well-known quote. I've seen it at the bottom of signatures and emails. But did you know where that's found? That's found in a discussion where C.S. Lewis is talking about leisure. And he's saying how we use our leisure matters to God. And he shows how in the Spartan civilization where they never learned how to use leisure properly, it collapsed And he says, it matters to God how we use our leisure as well as how we do our work and and more. That every part of creation belongs to God by virtue of creation but is counterclaimed in many ways by Satan. Now to say that he has supremacy in everything, let me just mention three ways that's true. One, it's over all the nations. Supreme over all peoples of the earth. 
This is the Global Spotlight Weekend, where we focus, where you, you focus attention on the fact that Christ is Lord over all the nations of the earth. That there is no nation, no people, no culture, no ethnic group, no language over which Christ doesn't say, they belong to me. And no people over which he does not press his claim. Revelation says that one day all nations, all tribes, all peoples, people from all nations are going to bow before his throne. And we need that global vision to realize that Christ's kingdom extends literally now to the ends of the earth. He is supreme over all peoples. But secondly, he might have supremacy over every part of human life. Where do you work? Business, social work, education, scholarship. What area of life do you work in? Christ says it belongs to me. I have supremacy and I, want, I demand that part of life. It belongs to me by creation, and I am reconciling all things. But then thirdly, that means that he has supremacy over all of our lives. That we think through every part of our lives and say, how can we serve Christ? How can we do all in the name of of Jesus Christ. That's the question that Paul is putting to the Colossians and putting to us, that in all things he might have supremacy. And then the last thing we note in this text is he says this, that by virtue of his work, he is head of the body, his church. Interestingly, at this exact same time, the exact same language is used of the Caesar, which says that Caesar is the head over the body of Rome, which was seen as a world empire. And what Paul does in direct conflict with that is says no. Christ is the head over the true people who are the kingdom of God. The empire, if you will, the kingdom that will last into the new earth. He is head over that body. And why? He says because the son not only gained the victory over evil at the cross, but in his resurrection, he was the firstborn, the first one to step, as it were, into the new creation and the coming kingdom of God. And as the firstborn in, he invites others to follow. And he says, those who follow by faith in Jesus Christ are now part of this church, this body that is now beginning to experience the new life of the kingdom of God where Christ has supremacy. And so if that's the case, Paul is saying to the Colossians and to us, we become a people are previews and pictures of the coming kingdom of God. What's that reconciliation going to look like? What's that going to look like? Well, look at the church. Look at the people of God who have already been born into that kingdom and whose lives are growingly living into that kingdom. Then Paul says in verse 21, we won't go into this, he brings it home personally to all of us. And he says, now, we've seen that cosmic scope of God's redemption. 
We've seen how this community now is part of that redemption. And you, he says, and you individually were alienated from God. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. You don't have to experience that guilt and that accusation. Rather, you have been freed from that. Not only freed from the power of sin and the powers, but also from the guilt of sin. And he says now, especially in chapter 3, Go out, and out of gratitude and in the power of the Spirit, live that out for the sake of the nations. What would it look like if the church at Perimeter, the church where I live in Vancouver, the church of Jesus Christ, I would say in North America, what would it look like if it was a church living under the total supremacy of Jesus Christ? Let me share with you a part of a list that I keep as an ongoing list as I'm preaching to think about what do the people of God look like in North America? I think maybe look like this. A community of self-control and marital fidelity in a world saturated by sex. A community of truth defended in humility and boldness in a world of relativity, relativism, uncertainty, and suspicion. A community that knows God's presence in a secular world that doesn't believe he exists or else if he does, he's outside of this world. A community of generosity and enough in a world of consumption. A community of thankfulness in a world of entitlement. A community of praise in a world of narcissism. A community of self-giving love in a world of selfishness and self-gratification. A community of wisdom in a world of proliferating knowledge and information technology. A community of patience in a world of immediate gratification. A community of compassion in a world numbed by overexposure to violence and tragedy. A community of joy in a world dominated by a frantic and hedonistic pursuit of pleasure. A community of depth in a culture of superficiality and triviality. A community committed to the important issues of our globe in a culture of apathy and indifference. And finally, a community of joyful and serious purpose in a culture that is amusing itself to death. If the people of God, living under the supremacy of Christ rather than the powers of Western culture, look something like that, I think it would be a very attractive community. And the good news of our evangelism, when we share good news and they say, where is this Christ at work? We could say, in that community where you've begun to see Christ's supremacy at work in the lives of his people. May the Lord bless you in your mission here in Atlanta.
Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we bow before you and acknowledge you as God, the fullness of God in bodily form. We bow before you as creator and reconciler of all things. We pray that you deepen our view of sin, not so that we can wallow in it, but so that we can see the power of your good news, the scope of salvation, and that we might have a bigger understanding of who you are, Lord Jesus Christ. To that end, may we turn our eyes upon you, and may all the parts of creation take their rightful place. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia, with services Saturday night at 6 and Sunday morning at 9 and 1045. Please visit our website for more information at www.perimeter.org. Be sure to visit the Media Resources section to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team.